Welcome to Swift Unwrapped. We have a lot happening in the Swift community in the last few weeks, so we'd love to just give a world tour of what's going on there and dive right in. Uh, Jesse, what in the last few weeks has caught your eye that's been happening in Swift language? Yeah, there's been a lot. Um, I guess with January, the new year, everyone's rested and uh, you know has plenty to get started on. Yeah, there's been a number of proposals. I think some actually started at the end of last year, but uh, the review periods are going into January. And yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, kind of smaller proposals uh, coming through that are uh, in review or just finishing right now. Yeah, there's proposals and there's also quite a bit of just work in progress that's happening. Just good iterative work, things like uh, progress on the type inference for um, single expression closures or uh, things like function builders um, having unidirectional constraint um, logic applied to, to speed up type inference. Like things, little things like that that are really going to end up helping things like Swift UI uh, in upcoming Swift releases and um, anything that people are building is, is DSLs using function builders. Yeah, I think I remember seeing some tweets about uh, some fixes that were coming that would uh, dramatically improve uh, Swift UI, but I don't think those have landed, at least in the um, latest release of Xcode. Is that right? Uh, definitely not in the latest release, release of Xcode. I mean, we're talking Swift 5.2 or maybe even later um, mm -hmm. where, where some of this stuff is landing, but some of it has definitely landed in, in Master. But beyond that, there's a handful of specific proposals that we wanted to discuss today. Um, so the first one is about changing the way that the magic file names um, are, are rendered. So the the pound file, uh, what is that, a keyword that previously was translated into the full absolute file path on disk, um, which is useful if, you have, if you've ever used things like XC test functions that go and pass where the declaration that actually has that um, is defined. Uh, but in the past, those those have always used the full file path. Another really common one is, is fatal error. One of the problems with that is that these file paths were baked into the binary and it leaked the host machine that compiled the code. So if, if you were building uh, for example, an app on your own personal machine from your own user, you might see your username that's baked into your binary. Or if you had CI generated, you might have Jenkins in there that was right. saying, or, or whatever CI system you used. Uh, and that didn't really fit the the purpose of what that magic identifier is actually used for. Right. That That's one thing that I didn't realize, that those strings are in the binary, but that makes a lot of sense, right? I guess there's no other option there. Like if you use hash file, then it has to evaluate like what that string is, right? Right, exactly. And so they, they would be stored as effectively similar to string literals uh -huh. um, where they're stored in, in the 
text section of the binary, I think, um, where right. the compiler would just translate uh, those identifiers to the, the string literal and store them in the binary. Yeah, so this proposal is um, uh, suggesting to preserve that behavior in a new pound file path identifier and introduce a new one um, pound file to replace the existing one that prints, it looks like just the module name and the, the file. Yeah, that's separated by a slash. Yeah, module name and file name. Right. And so this would mean that by default, um, these paths aren't leaked out, but that if you did want to use the previous behavior, for example, if um, you, you really want that um, additional insight into what file is triggering some sort of error or, or something like that, that you can still use it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it looks like this proposal, so it's been reviewed um, and it was returned for revision. Um, and so there's another review coming up uh, soon. And uh, it looks like there were a number of things that need to be uh, considered actually to make this uh, change moving forward without completely breaking everything and having tooling to map things accordingly. Um, so it looks like it seemed initially to me like a pretty simple proposal, but it looks like it's going to be a bit more complicated to actually implement. Yeah, I think with all things that have lived out in the wild for any amount of time, people start to rely on it. Uh, it starts to be used in more and more places increasingly over time. And I think that's what we're seeing with with file is that um, there's a number of places that, that need to be adapted and migrated if we're going to make this change. And it certainly sounds like uh, this will land just because the the benefits are, are clear and there hasn't been any significant pushback on the overall idea to do it. Uh, it's more a matter of you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's on it. Right. And it looks like the other uh, magic identifiers file, uh, like file, um, function, line, column, uh, will continue to um, work as before. Okay, so I think that's pretty much all that uh, there is to say about this proposal. Um, pretty straightforward in terms of, you know, what it's actually uh, going to change. Um, uh, even though the implementation details may be a little hairy. But the next one that we wanted to uh, discuss today was uh, 276, which is multi-pattern catch clauses, which... This is something that uh, I'm actually looking forward to. It looks like review is uh, is finished, and we're assuming that uh, we're just kind of waiting for the core team to meet and uh, deliver a final decision on this one. But currently, if you do, if you're implementing uh, error handling, um, you have your do try catch clauses, and uh, you can only catch one error at a time. So you could have like multiple catch clauses for each specific error, um, but you couldn't combine them like saying catch error one, comma, error two, etc. cetera. Um, you'd have to have, I guess the only alternative really is to have a single catch and then you can switch on that within the catch, which is not extremely uh, ergonomic, I guess. It, it could be improved, So, which is what this is trying to do. Yeah, I think I agree. Although in practice, um, 
I don't actually find myself switching over all that many different kinds of errors. I'd really say that 95% of the time, I'm just going to catch sort of the generic Swift error. And yeah. that the other 5% of the time, I'm probably switching over an enum. And for the most part, they tend to have sort of similar recovery paths, or mm-hmm. um, maybe I'll handle that that variability in different error codes further down. So for example, like a, a handle error that, that passes the cast error, sort of similar to, to what you were saying, where you're handling the switching sort of inside the catch block. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really just been fine for me. Um, adding this this level of, of um, switching on types seems somewhat useful um, in terms of ergonomics, like you mentioned, but ultimately it's, it's not all that much more empowering given that Swift doesn't have um, typed error throwing. You really just have typed error catching. Um, if right, if a declaration right. could constrain the type of errors that it threw um, a lot more, well, at all, um, I feel like this would be a lot more helpful where you could exhaustively check to see if you've um, caught all error types. Like right now, you you wouldn't be able to detect that. So this, this feels um, somewhat useful, but outweighed by the lack of typed error throwing. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, although I do think at least the the proposed syntax is uh, consistent with the rest of the language and how you can already do this in other situations. For example, when you're switching on an enum, one case can be a comma delimited list of the different cases for that enum, for example. Um, or if you're doing uh, like an if let, you can have multiple things, um, uh, multiple bindings in there separated by commas. So it does feel um, natural, I think, to to have this in your uh, ha- have the same kind of pattern for your catch clauses. Yep, I agree. It's a it's a consistency win. I think I, I I'm just not necessarily overwhelmed by the ergonomics wins that this is going to grant me moving forward, right? Sure. More sure. sort of a, let's chalk this up to, to a small consistency win. Yeah, I'm the same way, actually. Most of the time, I just catch the single error, and the very the specific error type is often not uh, that important. Yeah, some part of me sort of feels like I regret the decision that Swift took of not having throwing types defined um, or refined by the declarations because yeah. you know I, I feel like in practice and this is probably the lazy developer in me that's speaking mm-hmm. but that in practice you know I, I probably care about two categories of errors one are the concrete ones that I know are likely and a catch-all and if we could you know sort of codify that in the like say an error enum type, right? Or or like a list of errors type, where you would you would always have sort of concrete members and a catch-all that often matches the kind of error handling that um, I ought to do in practice. But because of the lack of typing, it's not immediately obvious 
the kinds of things in the sort of top level domain um, of the, the throwing function that you're calling that, that could throw. And I sort of feel like to bubble up um, errors more than more than once, you should either be using a common error type, um, something you know, something sort of standardized across your code base, um, or you should be sort of translating the domain. Um, and then for things that don't necessarily translate one to one, you have the catch all. Um, and I, I feel like if if Swift had fully embraced a model like that, that it might actually be encouraging better ha error handling than people, myself included, tend to do most of the time. Yeah, I could see that. There have been, I think, multiple um, threads and even uh, even old um, mailing list threads about typed throws. I can't remember all the details of those discussions, but I do remember it being not quite as simple as it may seem on the surface. It does introduce a lot of complexity to have typed throws. So yeah, I'm not sure if uh, we'll ever see a change like that based on those uh, discussions. But yeah, it is interesting to think about. And now that there's a result type, um, that also sort of changes the, uh, the landscape a little bit too, because now you sort of have two methods of propagating error informa information. Yeah, well, the result type has um, a typed and an untyped variant, basically. You have one oh, that right. just takes the plain error protocol, mm -hmm. and you can further refine that or restrict the kinds of errors by having something that conforms to error. Um, so it sort of feels like the equivalent to that could be the optional, not not in the language concept, but in, in right. the like not required sense, um, ability to specify a type subset of errors. Because right now there's that's sort of not balanced where if a meth if if a function returns a result, you can choose to have that be tightly typed. But if a function right. throws, you cannot. There's no equivalent. And I sort of I, I definitely agree that it would likely be a large and complex change. And in that sense, it's unlikely to happen on its own unless there's something else that happens in language to uh, motivate a larger change like that. And, and the thing that comes to mind that could potentially make that happen is async await mm. where, or, or some sort of actor model where, um, something that's more baked into the language may want to be able to differentiate between different kinds of errors. For example, having some sort of fatal error versus a user error, right? Where an actor model might want to determine whether or not it should reboot itself, reboot its actor, or um, if it should just surface the error up and keep going. Right, right. Now that you mentioned that, I think I recall part of the discussion of typed throws being that the async await model was not fully fleshed out, obviously. And um, once that started to sort of manifest, um, it would probably impact this whole idea of typed throws. And I think that might have been one of the reasons why the discussion was sort of tabled and deferred till later. I don't think it was completely shut down, but 
the idea was basically, oh, there's more things coming down the line that may influence how this change would be implemented. That rings a bell. I do think that these discussions have spanned so long at this point that it's, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to yeah, know that's true. What, what definitively happened. Uh, we're starting to need swift historians at this point to know yeah. uh, what the community was thinking circa 2014. Right. Well, those were just two of uh, the recent proposals that are part of the discussion lately, early 2020. But of course, the big news is an announcement in the forums by Ted Kremenek on what the road to Swift 6 will look like over the coming months, if not year. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is the first mention of, like first official mention of uh, Swift 6. I think. And Ted made the announcement about uh, a week ago. And he kind of lays out a list of like main goals that the the team, the core team is going to try to like drive forward um, with respect to uh, Swift 6. But he explicitly calls out that 6 will not necessarily be the next release. There will be potentially multiple 5.x releases uh, coming up uh, until Swift 6, which is interesting. Seems like maybe releases will start uh, slowing down a little bit, at least in terms of major version releases. That's definitely the impression that I get as well. Um, and Ted explicitly states, you know, we're, we're under active development for Swift 5.2 right now. Um, the it's, it's already been long branched out um, and pull requests have to go in to land more changes in Swift 5.2, right? So we're sort of in the final stages of preparing 5.2 and that we're likely to see a succession of 5.x releases. Focusing on some of the things in preparation for Swift 6 and Ted's really calling out that, all right, well, if we have a Swift 5.3, um, Swift 5.4, although he doesn't explicitly list that there would be that many um, minor releases, but that what would differentiate those 5.x releases from Swift 6 is um, those those changes to the language. So we'll probably see a pivot, my guess is, you know, six to eight months from now where we're starting to look at things in the ownership model, in um, concurrency support. Right. Um, probably not async await, but maybe who knows, right? If we're looking 12 plus months in advance, there's no concrete timeline right. here uh, that's shared, right? We sort of have to read between the lines to know that we're not going to see Swift 6 in 2020. Um, it's very unlikely. So it's, we're more talking um, maybe early to mid 2021. And so that seems like probably enough time to make the progress on these core three pillars that that's laid out, right? accelerating growth of the Swift software ecosystem. Number two, creating a fantastic development experience. And number three, investing in user empowering language directions. Um, so that's probably going to be fo the focus for like the next six months, I wanna guess, six, six eight months. And then after that, we'll right. probably see a shift towards ownership, concurrency, et cetera. Yeah, and if we don't see anything uh, concrete with async await in terms of actually bringing that feature into the language, I'm sure we'll see um, at least a lot of like the groundwork preparing for that change, which will be pretty big. So let's go back to that first sort of uh, 
pillar, accelerating the growth of the Swift software ecosystem. To me, it seems like this has honestly been quite a challenge. I mean, Swift is technically available on like Windows and Android, thanks to some people in the community that have been working on that. But uh, as far as I know, it's not widely used outside of um, Apple's platforms. Uh, I, I guess there's some server development, but even then it still seems like a very, uh, I don't know, unstable state, actually, the Swift server stuff. Uh, what's your take on that, JP? Right. Well, saying that Swift is available on Android and Windows it has a massive asterisk there because yeah, yeah. Um, they're not platforms that are uh, tested through Swift's CI. Um, at least not to the extent that uh, they are for um, Ubuntu, which is really the only flavor of Linux that um, right. is, is tested on, on a regular basis, or Darwin. But you do have um, members of the community that are really driving that effort. And this actually ties in a little bit into um, part of this announcement, which is sharing that the composition of the Swift core team is changing really in large strokes for the first time since it was formed um, six years ago. Right. Or not quite six years ago. The, the language is six years, but it, it's been open source for like five mm -hmm. or four. I forget. Um, but that uh, Dave Abrahams is stepping down and that, uh, where, where are they listed here? I know that um, said Salim Amdoub Rasul, there we go. I see, I see their names now. Who's Contnerd, who's mm -hmm. really been the primary force behind porting Swift to Windows is now joining the team. And I think his presence alone um, should be really helpful in terms of bringing a voice to su supporting, really truly supporting Swift on Windows, bringing Swift Package Manager support, CoreLibs Foundation support, um, which he's driven a lot of, but can only really do so much as a single contributor. And I'm hoping that he can help influence the core team's priorities by um, just being a voice for that cross-platform support. Speaking of which, there's also Tom Doran, who's uh, joining the Swift core team, who um, Tom helped create Swift Neo. Right. Yeah. So it looks like Tom um, is employed at Apple and perhaps has been for a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure, but it looks like I think Salim is just a contributor. He's not um, employed by Apple. Yeah, he's at Facebook, if memory serves. Ah, okay. I think it's interesting that I guess Salim would be the second non-Apple employee on the on the core team after uh, Chris Latner, who, who left uh, a while back. Yeah, I think you could say that that's technically correct, but he's the first person to join the Swift core team while not being at Apple. Right, right. Which is big news, really. Um, and I think it's important to say that it's not something that seems to have been um, granted lightly because Salim has had a ton of contributions, like major contributions to, to right. making Swift happen, uh, especially on Windows, but overall as well. So, um, you know, it's not like they just granted someone who, for example, has um, written a lot of Swift or even written a lot of Swift open source stuff. It's really had a huge impact on um, the 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 direction of the language yeah absolutely yeah so congrats to uh salim and tom for uh joining the core team 
yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what comes next, especially with the uh, the window stuff. I wonder if it'll become more of a priority or um, at le- at least be uh, tested regularly. Um, yeah, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, another angle that that's relevant to um, to sort of recent proposals is support for Amazon Linux, which is the proprietary flavor of Linux that runs on AWS Lambda, um, which you know, is sort of the de facto platform for running like serverless code. So if you right. wanted to write Swift Lambdas before, like the Lambda service supports like probably half a dozen or more languages, but Swift isn't one of them. Um, and there have been ways to sort of shim in Swift support, but mm-hmm. uh, none of them have been very well supported. Um, a lot of stuff breaks when you try to do that. And so uh, that's a recent proposal, and that falls in line with that number one um, of th- of the three goals that are listed in terms of Road to Swift 6 focus is part of widening that Swift software ecosystem is, is making it more available like that. I, I really hope that something like that is, is very strongly considered support for um, Amazon. I think it's Arch Linux. Yeah, and one of the, uh, the concrete goals that, Ted lists here is expanding the number of platforms where Swift is available and supported. So it seems like, I mean, adding Salim to the core team seems like they are very serious about following through with this. So yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens in practice, right? Yeah. yeah Another yeah. big thing that I, I can't believe we still uh, haven't seen now um, many years into Swift being available on Linux is you can't install it using uh, any uh, using Ubuntu's um, package manager. You can't do oh, really? app get install Swift. Um, and you look at every other language uh, yeah. that exists out there. And it's it's something that you can you can do for Ruby, Python, uh, Perl, like uh, Rust, you name it, you, you can right. install all these languages. So seeing seeing that be supported uh, would be really helpful. Actually, I think Rust maybe like you, you need to run it using something else. But the, my point being that you can, um, you, like, using a one-liner install the language, and Swift can't do that. Right, right. Seems like uh, some good low-hanging fruit to uh, make that easier. Yeah, and there's like Ubuntu has this concept of snaps, which are universal Linux packages. Um, ah. So that's another sort of installation mechanism and Swift isn't on there, right? So I, right. I think just trading that as a first-class citizen would, would really go a long way. Yeah, so let's move on to the the next point here that Ted calls out, which is creating a fantastic development experience. And a few things that he lists here to improve the uh, developer experience, faster builds, better diagnostics, responsive code completion and reliable and fluid debugging experience. Um, I think all of these have definitely improved massively over the past few years uh, since uh, Swift was released. Uh, And we know the diagnostics, that new diagnostics engine is coming. Uh, We discussed that on the show before. So this seems to be something that's sort of uh, already in progress, at least. Yeah, I mean, these are like, if if at any point in a language's lifetime you're not considering these kinds of things, uh, you're you're dropping the ball, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and it has 
been a folk well, folks have continued to put in work along those four points um throughout swift's life mm-hmm. I, i'm part of me is sort of wondering like what makes it different to call it out here as one of the top three goals on the road to swift six right, right. because to to a large extent these kinds of things like you know App, apple has hired and dedicated folks to those four points for the entire time that we've known about Swift. Right. And so right. what makes it different to call it out as one of the three goals on the road to Swift 6? Um, you know, I sort of appreciate the sentiment, but part of me is a little skeptical in terms of um, like what kind of benchmarks is this being held against um, in terms of prioritization? Right. And, you know, I I would love to see um, you know, some some more like aggressive or perhaps just more transparent goals listed around these, so that uh, you know we we can sort of push towards them. And part of me would no, I, I'd be very surprised if Apple didn't have those goals internally. Um, right, right, right. Like you think of, you can sort of see this as part performance, part. Um, user experience, right? Mm-hmm. And at any large company that has a team focused on performance and user experience, like you'd have some way to measure it and you'd have some goals or OKRs mm-hmm. for like what target you sort of want to hit. And, and those would probably be aggressive, but realistic, right? And the fact that we don't see what those are Right. Makes me wonder, like, we have no visibility into, like, well, is this just a formality to say that this is a focus? Right, right. Or is it something that we're going to see, like, some clear wins on in this time frame? Um, and I do want to take a step back and and sort of acknowledge that Swift being open source, it shouldn't be just up to Apple to, to do this stuff. But mm-hmm. I think historically it's it's the kind of thing that very few um outside community contributors have have gone and pitched in on uh and i think there's a bit of a double-sided issue there where it may not necessarily be super obvious um Mm -hmm. as an outsider to know where to dig in for this kind of stuff um and on the flip side apple probably doesn't in an ideal world want to load all of that onto just themselves, given that Swift is supposed to be this open language. But but I'd go as far as to say that um, sharing clear goals and measurement strategies and um, roadmaps for this would actually help folks to contribute because there'd be a clear path for, all right, well, where are we, where's the puck skating to? Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I mean, like you said, I think a lot of these are very likely internal goals for, you know, the Xcode team and the Swift team. You know, all of these things, um, with perhaps the exception of responsive code completion, are not necessarily IDE specific. So these can be improved in like the open source projects that are available in those projects themselves. But it seems like there's also sort of a a goal to encourage, you know, other IDEs on other platforms, which these uh, these four bullet points would would help encourage um, or at least make easier. But yeah, I agree that it's kind of hard to 
take any tangible information away from from this here without knowing um yeah i guess some of these uh internal things at apple right maybe that's where like some sort of dev experience um working group could come up where mm-hmm. meetings would be open similar to the server side working group um and folks could at least follow along if not actively participate all right well um i think we're gonna have to stop there for today there's uh, a lot more information uh in this uh, forum post from ted so we'll link to it in the show notes have a read through it uh when you get a chance as always uh thanks for listening you can find us on twitter at swift underscore unwrapped uh, and you can find other cool tech uh cool tech podcasts at spec.fm and if you enjoy the show please take a minute and leave a review on itunes mm-hmm.